0: Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Julie Sani, an iconic and trailblazing cooking teacher and the author behind several cookbooks on Indian cuisine. For this episode, we wanted to try something a little different— Because when Julie and I had our interview, we spoke for around three hours. And as much as I loved every minute of our conversation, we just couldn't put it all in this episode. So instead of playing selected clips from that conversation, we're going to try to craft a story together. A story of Julie's life as it relates to the food that she has created, the food that she has eaten, and the food that she has inspired those around her to make themselves. And for a story like this, it makes sense to start where so many food
1: stories start, in the kitchen. The most sacred place in an Indian home, traditional Indian home, is not the bedroom. It's the kitchen. Mm. It's the kitchen that they won't let you enter into. They will get let you come into the your bedroom and that's where everybody would congregate and talk. So, kitchen is not just a special place where you cook, but it's almost sacred. And and therefore, every family has a way, particularly in particular costs. So, in our caste, uh, which is a Brahmin, uh, you put a stamp on the stove so that nobody would cook on it after you have left. So, uh, to do that, you first have to build the stove.
0: What Julie explained to me was that when a family would first move into a new kitchen, it would be completely empty. And they would use clay to build the stove on the ground of the room. And then, once it was built, they would continue the ritual by marking it as their own.
1: What they do is they put a little bit of um, uh, decoration on it with a rice flour uh, so that it looks pretty. And uh, also it's almost like worshipping it. And then they would take a, a pot with the water in it, and then they put either rice or lentil because both of them, when they cook, they create a uh, uh, foam and they broth mm-hmm. up. And once the, uh, once it foams and it broths up, and that broth comes over and touches the side of the pot and also the stove itself, it'll come down on it. That stove has now become that family's, and therefore nobody else in that, uh, except for that family, would be allowed to come into that kitchen. This is the way they kept the food clean. It's a hygiene issue. Mm -hmm. And when we left the uh, place and went to another one, that would be the last room that will be cleared. And uh, they will go and break that stove, literally, so that nobody else can use it. Nobody uh, who was not part of the family could enter the kitchen. Nobody. Not even the first cousin or second cousin or no one. It was just strictly for that family. It's a beautiful ritual in a way because uh, it kind of shows the the kind of a, a link between the cooking, the kitchen, and the family.
0: Even as Julie has traveled the world and moved into different kitchens, she's kept up this ritual. Not to the extent of building a new stove every time she moves into a new building, but she carries on the practice in her
1: own way. I do do ritual, cooking something and then uh, offering it uh, to the home itself and going from room to room and saying, this is my home. Mm -hmm. And because it's more than just a house and to make a house into a home you go through this ritual, and then the that home, and you become uh, literally one in one and one. Mm-hmm. It's a bond that people have. We don't even call it a ritual; it's just a just a habit. Yeah.
0: Whether you call it a habit or a ritual, as Julie tells me, there's really nowhere that it's more on display than at a wedding.
1: Wedding feasts are something uh, where. You get really a sample of uh, the traditional cooking in India because these are uh, these rituals and those dishes and the way they're presented dates back uh, centuries. My caste people claim this is at least 2,900 years old. This ritual of cooking that okay. way in South Indian weddings. They still start with a bare, you know, empty kitchen with just stove, which again go through this process of blessing. Mm. And after the blessing is what the pot is put in cooked. And even though the food is cooked for 400 people and 600 people, it still goes through the same process of making all the spices and all. Those are the rituals of that time and they're still practicing it.
0: The idea that the same dish has been prepared in the same way for the same festivities for almost 3,000 years is incredibly humbling. And then Julie dropped what I would consider to be a pretty big bombshell.
1: India, in those days, had uh, hardly any spices. Did you know that India only had three spices? That's what, and it's still India is called land of spices. It's, uh, and always have my students guess as to which those three spices are. And funny thing is they are able to guess the, the difficult ones and the easiest one is the one they have the most difficulty. So the three spices are cardamom, mm-hmm. turmeric, and the third one, which is the most obvious one, which everybody misses, is the black pepper. Oh. These are the only three spices which are called indigenous to India. In fact, most of the curry powder spices are not Indian. Mm-hmm. They came from um, uh, Mediterranean. Eastern Mediterranean mm-hmm. region, Africa and all that. So, for example, everybody associate cumin with India. Mm-hmm. And cumin is from Egypt. They associate uh, uh, fenugreek with India, mm-hmm. you know. And fenugreek is from Ethiopia. Mustard seeds, um, you know, all these coriander seeds. All of them, chili, chili, you know, where it comes from, New World. We have all these spices from all over the world which came to India, And India has a great (laughs) talent for absorbing everything and calling it its own. And the world (laughs) says, okay.
0: (laughs) I had only been speaking to Julie for a little while at this point, and I had already learned so much. So it had me wanting to dig deeper about her career and some of the biggest early learning moments for her.
1: I think it happened when I started taking cooking classes, cooking lessons. Because uh, in India, I, I had only learned Indian cooking, um, mm-hmm. mainly North Indian cooking and Mughal cooking, and at home, uh, the North Indian cooking, and uh, also the South Indian cooking, because uh, you know of my parental heritage. And I was raised in North, but I have a parental heritage of South. Those things... Uh, only taught me the Indian know-how and the techniques and the skills. Having gone to Chinese cooking classes and then also the French cooking classes and the Italian cooking classes, I learned how to uh, speak in what is called a common food language. Mm -hmm. Because in India, everything is cooked till done, they say. Mm -hmm. Oh, just cook it till it's done. But it's there's nothing like that. In our vocabulary here, because you need to explain what is done, because you need to say whether it looks seared, whether it looks uh, caramelized or whether it is kind of a, a soft so that it's uh, creamy enough so that when you touch with a thumb, it kind of feels uh, silky. So we talk about textural quality. We talk about the softness. We talk about the, the level of cooking itself. So Indian cooking usually doesn't have that vocabulary because I don't think they were cooking schools or established books in older time. Mm. People learned it by just observing. And there was a lot of secrecy. When I wrote Classic Indian Cooking, I was the first to write about it. And I was worried I would get into trouble.
0: Despite some concern over revealing these secrets, Julie began putting some of her new culinary vocabulary to use.
1: I started describing the techniques in a more specific manner uh, as to what they should watch out for when they're cooking. So I described in stages what happens, not just in the end. Mm-hmm. And, that, and nothing. I think one of the best examples is how you make ghee. hmm which is the clarified butter and i remember uh, writing about it when i was, when the book was being uh, you know in the in the formative stages and my editor looked at what i had written and said julie that won't do i said people love ghee and we love ghee and you need to explain in detail what really happens when you melt the butter until the point where you get ghee as a product See, so just saying cook until, you know, the foam subsides and you have a brownish liquid, that's not good enough. And that's almost like saying cook until done. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that took me about uh, 35 batches of cooking over a period of close to five to six months. And I kept cooking. And, and this is no exaggeration. Probably I did more than that. And I kept cooking and I kept cooking the same ghee, the same one pound of butter until I could see it in my dream. <laughs> it's almost like the milky way that is on top and how it cooks down and then slowly the, fo- the foam forms on it. And in the beginning, the- before the foam forms, it's like a thick bubbles and the thick bubbles becomes foam. And then the these finer bubbles form and it's almost that finer bubbles mixed with the foam. And then the sound from crackling sound to how it starts to subside to no sound at all. And that's when you know it's ready. But this whole process is so beautiful. It is so sensuous when you listen to it. So that's what I think you learn when you Go, go through this whole process of observing in detail.
0: So, hearing Julie talk about her process and the fact that she walked through the steps of making ghee 35 times over the course of several months, and even just listening to her now, the way she describes what you're looking for when you make it yourself, you would think that she's been practicing since the moment she could speak. But she actually found her way into food in a fairly roundabout way. Even before college, Julie was a professional dancer, and she traveled all around India, Europe, and the Middle East. She even tried keeping it up after leaving home and moving to New York City to go to graduate school and work as a city planner. Julie continued to dance, but after a year, issues with her visa meant that she couldn't continue to do it in a professional capacity.
1: So that's where the food came into my picture, because I I had this art in me. I needed some outlet.
0: While searching for ways to scratch her creative itch, Julie found a cooking class. And then another. And another. All the while talking to her classmates about the food from her own culture. Sharing ideas and trading that culinary language that she was developing. Eventually, one of her classmates asked if she would ever teach a class herself. She did them one better. She started her own cooking school. It didn't take long before journalists caught wind of Julie's class and the incredible meals that she was helping people cook at home. From word of mouth came articles featuring Julie's cooking. From those articles came more classes. And from more classes came an opportunity to write a book. And though there would be money involved, that's not what got Julie to say yes.
1: For me, it has always been uh, to reach people who want something you have that is going to enhance their life or their you know, kitchen or their family. If I can do something to better it, uh, then for me, it is mission accomplished.
0: Julie Sani's book, Classic Indian Cooking, was published in 1980 and brought the practices and recipes that people have been coming to her to learn to the masses. When we come back, we will dive deep into one particular recipe of Julie's for Sarsoon Kasag, this week's Genius Recipe on Food 52. Meet you back here for that. Before the break, we went through the beginnings of Julie's story, talking about some of the traditional Indian rituals that shaped her culinary background as she made her way through careers as a dancer and an architect, and how, through all of that, she found herself opening a cooking school in New York City. But now, I want to bring us back toward the present, to talk about this week's Genius Recipe on Food 52 from Julie's cookbook, Classic Indian Vegetarian and Grain Cooking.
1: This recipe uh, which we're talking about, is called Saag. And Saag means greens. And it comes from uh, the northwestern region of Punjab. And actually, it is loved by a group of people called Sikh. Uh, it's a separate religion in India. Uh, Sikh uh, people make this uh, particular dish in a very uh, distinct uh, style which is quite different than all other regions. uh, Different regions cook greens. It's not like uh, only this region cooks. But they have a a particular combination of certain greens and the way they cook it and present it is a meal loved by not just this Sikh Punjabis, but also other parts of the country. Saag, which is a a pureed greens, which is kind of laced with... uh, uh, kind of a butter, which is kind of a, melted on top. You put a tharka on top. Tharka is a, a spice-infused butter, actually, but it's, it turns into a ghee. So ghee is a clarified, Indian-style clarified butter. You cook uh, ginger and garlic uh, till they get slightly caramelized. And then you pour this over this uh, puree, which is spread almost like the way we spread hummus on a plate. And uh, it just is wonderful. And this particular dish presented this way is eaten with cornbread. And uh, this cornbread is made with yellow cornmeal. Made uh, almost like a uh, tortilla, except it's slightly thicker. This dish called makkeki roti, which is Makkah is corn. Roti is, of course, the tortilla-like bread, which is called roti. That's the way this dish is enjoyed. This particular uh, greens preparation is not just uh, uh, one green. It's a combination of several. Uh, At least three of them are combined in a traditional dish, a saag dish. And that is um, mustard greens. And then the second one is actually called bathua. Mm-hmm. Batwa is actually uh, lamb's quarters, and which is like a French marsh, which is used in uh, uh, salads. You can, of course, substitute spinach if you don't have that, uh, this particular greens. And then the third one is fenugreek greens. So mustard greens and the fenugreek greens both are uh, considered as uh, warm greens. They are usually eaten in winter, particularly fenugreek greens. They appear during winter only. So uh, they create inner inner heat. It's like having uh, brandy. In wintertime is when this particular dish is really loved.
0: As you're simmering the greens, what are your tips for what to look for to get the right amount of liquid depending on what kind of greens you're using?
1: The most important thing is that in the end, you want the puree that looks like a puree uh, of uh, greens and not a soup. You don't want it to look like a sauce. Uh, To have that texture, you have to be careful not to just dump a whole lot of water in it. If you're going to substitute, instead of fenugreek greens, if you're going to add uh, dried fenugreek, uh, you have to watch out uh, and how much liquid you add. And also if you're adding spinach, which variety of spinach you're adding. So instead of dumping a whole lot of water, you can add, uh, because it's a long prolonged cooking so you can add hold some of the water and add as you go along in the end you have just enough water uh, so that the vegetables are just covered in it so that when you puree it it is like a thick bean soup very thick bean soup it has to be have that consistency it's not as thick as hummus because the hummus is kind of a more uh, like a paste like this one would be uh, slightly thinner than that. And when you add the cornstarch uh, in the end and the corn flour, it kind of binds it together.
0: About the the ginger and garlic uh, sizzled in the ghee, it, it seems like it's this foundational Indian technique of doing a, a chonk or a tadka. Could you just describe how that works in this recipe?
1: This particular technique called tadka is a, uh, a literal translation is uh, spice-infused butter could be spice-infused oil too, but traditionally it's spice-infused butter or spice-infused clarified butter, which is ghee. So in this technique, you heat the ghee or the clarified butter and then you put some ingredients. It's uh, spices or seasoning and you let it uh, cook really well till it browns. If it is whole spices, then you cook it fully uh, till it browns. Or if you're adding seasonings like ginger and garlic, you wait till it caramelizes and then you pour this over the uh, finished dish. So adding a tarka is actually almost like adding a garnish on a dish. However, in Indian style cooking, oftentimes the garnish is uh, folded into the dish so it isn't left right on top. So sometimes they completely folded into it, so uh, that's perfectly okay. Or it is left on top so that it looks beautiful uh, at, uh, for presentation. Uh, or it could be slightly just blended in. So you could do it either way. When it comes to
0: blending the greens, what would you advise uh, in terms of equipment uh, for people to use to get the texture that
1: they're looking for? Uh, remember, we're talking about uh, recipes from India, which are centuries old. And uh, they didn't have any appliances and all those. And now we are, we've got blenders and food processors and all that. So they used uh, simple gadgets made with wood <laughs> or metal to blend ingredients. So they would use an apparatus called mathini. And uh, matni is a wooden appliance which is basically what it does it it crushes and blends simultaneously the food. But it does it so gently so it doesn't completely uh, make it like a smooth puree, like a pasty texture. So it still leaves little lump. Uh, you can still see little texture of uh, stem of uh, Mustard green, soft, silky pieces, because remember, Indians eat with fingers and hand, so texture is very important uh, when you're eating with fingers. So so anything which is kind of a gooey, pasty, they would leave it a little lumpy.
0: Julie picked up a tool called a muttony. It's a long wooden rod with sort of a star shape at the top, and it almost looks like a stubby umbrella. You can actually see Julie showing it off herself in the video that we made to go along with this recipe. We will include a link to it in our show notes. Looking at it, it's easy to see how this is the kind of tool that would be passed down from generation to generation. Because it's always these simple tools, the ones without bells and whistles, that seem to stand the test of time. When Julie wrote the recipe for classic Indian vegetarian and grain cooking in 1985, she called for a blender or food processor. So I wanted to hear from her how blending might be different than with a matini.
1: I always have this question in the class, it's, what if I don't have blender? Well, because a lot of people don't have blenders. They only have food processors nowadays. Mm-hmm. In the time when these recipes were created, they didn't have these gadgets. So this is what they worked with. Probably if they had blender or immersion blender, they would have used it because it's much faster and easier. And I don't think, I don't see there's any problem Mm -hmm. with it. Just be careful Mm -hmm. as to not to keep blending it till you start foaming it. You know, after some time, the air gets built in. Mm -hmm. So it starts to foam. So you don't want that to happen. When the foam settles, it'll become liquid. And then that'll separate from the solids. So you want to know when to stop it. If nothing else, if you're stuck and don't have any appliances or any gadgets or anything, and you somebody has, uh, you know, frozen greens and you make this dish and you need to mix it, put your hands and just mush it up. Hmm. And it'll work just beautifully. Indian women, this is how they did it first. Nothing like just hands.
0: So comforting to know that even if we don't have the tools, we always have these.
1: Oh, absolutely. A lot of people don't realize food... Uh, and cooking is very forgiving you know you don't need to get all uptight about you know everything being so precise and everything has to be exactly the same way there's nothing like oh it's a classic it's a hundred year old 200 year old food has evolved you know and if you don't have some ingredient substitute and it becomes yours after that
0: Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Julie Sani, legendary author and owner of Julie Sani's Cooking School. There is one more timely, surprising part of our conversation that we couldn't fit into this episode, so we will be releasing it as a bonus episode next week. Stay tuned. I also wanted to mention special thanks to Mayuk Sen, who was a recent guest on this podcast and whose new book, Tastemakers, profiles Julie and six other immigrant women who shaped American cooking over the past century and it was invaluable reading in getting ready for this episode. This week's show was put together by Harry Sultan, Amy Schuster, and Emily Hanhan. If you have a favorite Julie Sani recipe, I would love to hear about it at geniusfood 52com or just tag me on Instagram at McGlorious. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes and the Food 52 Podcast Network, the very best thing that you can do to support us and to help other people find the show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating or review. Or just send this episode to someone who would appreciate knowing where to find the world's most thorough explanation on how to make ghee from a very dedicated and generous teacher. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week.